0: So infrastructure spending on the government level, especially when done with low-interest loans, it's profitable on the loan, and then it turns around and is profitable in the tax revenue side. This is the kind of spending that we want to see in the government because that's the kind of spending that long-term raises GDP. Same is true when when you're talking about college, just as a side note, that low-interest college loans from the government raises GDP long-term. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Uh, Welcome back to another second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach, as exciting or boring as you wish, according to your interests. Uh, I am Jake McClure, and on the line with me, I have...
1: Jake McClure.
0: Together we are bald. We are also the Personal Wealth Coach. So if you would like to join the conversation, we're talking about economics. We're talking about silliness in the market and not so silliness. We're going to talk some more this hour on the bigger picture rather than focused in on one stock trading in a crazy way. Um, But if you have any questions, the email addresses in here are jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com as in the personal wealth coach. All right. So I took up the... Vast majority of last hour talking about one thing, and I know you had a lot of stuff to talk about. So I'm going to hand it over to you and take a yeah. back seat for a little
1: bit. That's going to be hard to do since we're in different places, but I will let you do that. the The big news in the economy obviously was that the gross domestic product for the last year dropped by three and a half percent. That's the biggest drop since 1946. Is that a bad thing? No, not necessarily uh, for the total economy. Because it's coming back, and even though we had we had about a three, three, well, more than C three six. Yeah, we had about a three and a half percent growth early on per quarter, and then last quarter we had a one percent growth in the economy, which really isn't a lot. It's four percent for the year, but it didn't bring us up to break even for the year of twenty twenty. What's gonna happen in the future is what most people are concerned about. Well, right now we're going through a bumpy spot and it's gonna continue to be a bumpy spot, but it's important to recognize that we have what's called a strongly bifurcated economy right now.
0: You like that? Oh, bifurcated, Now, now we're getting into origami terms.
1: The bifurcated economy means that part of the economy is doing very, very well and part of it is really in bad shape. And a lot has to do with how much education and experience you have. For example, In Los Angeles, we have a problem. and The the Port of Los Angeles, as of a couple of days ago, had 28 gigantic container ships setting offshore at anchor, unable to get into the port because there's so much wants to come in. At the same time, we have mountains of containers that we want to export sitting in the same port that we can't get out of the country as exports. This is going on all across the country. Well, why is that? Well, for one thing, we talked about earlier that, well, I didn't talk about it earlier, but it's important to recognize the purchases of durable goods in the the fourth quarter was up 12% from a year earlier. Recreational vehicle sales jumped 21%. Housing investment jumped 14%. We're buying a lot of physical objects in our economy right now. Now that's important to recognize that a lot of those physical objects come from someplace else on the planet Our parts to make those physical objects come from someplace else on the planet. And they've got to come in through the ports. Well, why are the ports jammed up? Well, for one thing, we've got record volume, but another one is there is a disease going on a pandemic. And every time somebody gets COVID and was working with somebody else, then those, those people go into quarantine for two weeks. And there's enough sick people or the longshoremen that work in the ports and other people who work in the ports. There's enough people sick at any given moment that they don't have enough workers, but they like to hire some more. They'd love to hire some more. But it takes years of experience and apprenticeship to become an effective longshoreman or to operate those big cranes or to do all the things that we need to do in a complex society. The same thing is true all across the country right now. We'd, we'd love to build more houses. Housing prices are going up. Housing starts are going up, but we can't build as many houses as we'd like to build. We can't build as many houses as people wanna buy. Why? Because there's a shortage of qualified electricians and plumbers among others. We just don't have the workforce to build all the stuff we wanna build. as a result, the people who are in these skilled jobs who have education are experiencing a boom. A lot of them are working from home right now if they're in clerical positions. they're doing very, very well. They're seeing their pay go up, their hours go up. Uh, they're having a very good time with this. This isn't hurting them a bit. That's why they're out buying houses. That's where all the money's coming from to buy those durable goods and those SUVs. What is, but the other side of the market, the other side of the economy that's, that's, that we may not be seeing unless you're part of it, and most of the listeners of this radio program probably are not part of it, is the low-skilled working population in the United States, the people who don't have extensive education, They don't have extensive uh, experience in a complex job. The waiters, the people who clean the hotels, the people who tend to things, the people who basically have low-skilled jobs, those are low-productivity jobs, low-skilled jobs. Then you can see this in the numbers showing up. We have a 6% lower labor force. The number of people employed in the United States right now is 6% lower than it was a year ago. 6% 6% of the total labor force is a lot of people out of work. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the condition our economy is in is, is worse than it was in 2008 when we were sliding and we were in the physically in the worst part of the, what's called the Great Recession. So we got this bifurcated economy where a lot of people are out of work and a lot of people are experiencing a great, wonderful economic success at the same time. When have we seen that before? Can you guess what it is? Um, the late nineteen nineties. No, actually, in the late nineteen nineties, we had the maximum. We hit what, well at the time, was considered considered to be full unemployment. Full employment. Uh, not quite as much as we got in twenty nineteen, but we had almost everybody who wanted to find it wanted to work was working.
0: I, I was answering a little bit sillyly. Uh, <laughs> so,
1: nineteen twenty.
0: So we're, we're we're going back to this kind of echo we talked last hour about the 1920s and how we're seeing a lot of similarities between then and now. Uh,
1: in the early 1900s, we had exactly the same thing going on. The we had a pandemic in the 19. It was called, it's called the pandemic of 1918, but it was still going strong in 1920 and 21. Uh, and the effects of it didn't really hit until 1920 and 21. We had what was called the forgotten depression really wasn't a depression by the standard we use today. It was a recession, similar to the one we're in right now, if we're in a recession. The point is that the low-skilled people lost their jobs and the high-skilled people got promoted. And that happened for the rest of the decade. And we're probably going to see that for the rest of this decade. And we it's something we need to address as a nation. I'm not sure how we're going to address education is probably the solution, but we have this. We are. We're seeing jobs being replaced by robots and by digitalization, even as we speak. Uh, kind of, then the other thing that's happening. I mentioned this in in the, in the We mentioned this in the uh, in the newsletter. There's been a 14 percent drop in commercial real estate investment, buying and improving the buildings that commercial operations use. And there's been a 14% rise in residential investment. That's improving people's homes because people are, a lot of people are stuck at home. They have the cash coming in that they're not, and they're not spending, you know, things like going out to eat or going to the movies. And they're deciding that this is the time to add to their garage or build a new room onto their house or remodel their house. This is a tremendous economic moon. If you don't think it's going on, uh, just drive by Lowe's or home Depot or look at the price of lumber in those places. It's, I think the lumber's got gold thread in it or something as much as they're charging for it. They're they're combining
0: it with electronics now so that the the 2 by 4s all have processors to help them stand up. They're not doing anything. They just install them in there.
1: But over in the services sector, which includes an awful lot of the things I was talking about, including waiters and people cooking and people who do services for for the rest of us, we've seen a 33% drop in employment. This is where our economy is right now. And unfortunately or fortunately, the money that's received by those lower income people, those lower skilled people tends to get spent immediately. So that is one of the things that's buoying the economy up, that's keeping it growing, is the fact that when the stimulus check goes out, it's going out to the lower income people. Most of them are spending it immediately. But you can see a clear pattern showing up here. And John asked this question about savings. You can see a clear pattern. The more income a couple has or a family has, the more likely they are already, the more likely they are to put their stimulus check in savings. So we're getting about, and this is really weird, we're getting about uh, uh, 60% of the stimulus is going into savings, which literally is producing too much money in the economy, too much cash. In the past... And Milton Friedman was, would would be shocked at this at this point. I think in the past, having that much available money would have created inflation. Right now, we're trying to get inflation to go up. Uh, inflation did rise in uh, in December, 0.4 uh, percent, which was unusual, in, while spending went down. And that is a very unusual situation, but it's going on, and we don't know whether inflation will rise right now. Inflation is being driven by a shortage, but the shortage is not the shortage. It's not the traditional shortage where we're just not making enough stuff to sell. And so the price goes up, so the demand is higher than the supply. The shortages are coming in through logistics bottlenecks all over the country. We're getting logistics bottlenecks where we're just not getting enough. The stuff that's being made is just not getting to market at the speed it's being made. So we've got a really... uh, interesting economy going on that we literally have not seen this type of force going on in the economy since the 1920s. We, and and there's a strong argument, we're likely to repeat the roaring 20s. Agreed. Uh,
0: I I think that this productivity increase now, that means what happens on the other end, we we can talk about that as we get closer to it. Uh, But we have another question. John sent in a question as well. Uh, are you ready for, for that question? Ready. Okay, here it goes. Lots of talks, uh, lots of talk about the inf- of an infrastructure bill in Congress, but you only hear about roads and bridges. The green movement is pushing a mandate toward battery powered cars that will need chargers. More and more tech dominates everything we do. Also needs chargers. How old is the nationwide power grid, and what will an upgrade cost? Okay. First, we have to recognize that we don't have a nationwide power grid. This is one of the things that we've got a grid that covers the whole nation, but it's separated into three different major grids. Texas is one. Then you've got the Eastern board and the Western board. And that's something that has been
1: separated that
0: way for a long, long time.
1: There's also a fact that we don't have a national power grid in the sense that the government owns the power grid. Right. Power grid is owned by individual companies. For example, the, some of the big fires in California were sparked by the fact that uh, what is it, Pacific Power and Light? Yeah. Did not properly maintain their power grid, and a lot of the, a lot of the, transmission lines that they have have been there, for sixty or seventy years without proper maintenance on them. Yeah. This thing is expensive, and with the price of electricity dropping, its competition opens up, you have the choice between electric companies right now. Uh, maintaining that is important and putting new power lines in. And Texas, I will say, has been putting new power lines in, much to the irritation of the landowners they put it in on. Yeah. So here,
0: here's the difficulty. When we deregulate—well, let me answer the, the first question first. How old is it? What do we need to do? Uh, how old is the, the power grid? There was a study done on it uh, back in 2018— that said 70% of the Transformers, and those are the, this is not the movie Transformers, this is not a a semi-truck that turns into a large robot. Uh, This is those uh, tub-looking things, the cylindrical gray devices on the poles that you see, and sometimes they're much larger than that. 70% of those are 25 years or older. Um. And there's a talk to, to upgrade all of it would be in the many trillions of dollars. Minimum estimate is $5 trillion to upgrade everything to get it up to new status. Okay, so here's the sticky point. We're going to get into an area that is difficult because this is where, this is one of my favorite types of areas where capitalism and socialism overlap. The Power grid is not owned by the government, but the easement that is used to go across private com- property is technically a government asset. We don't have if, if if we've deregulated and we have say say let's let's go to right after deregulation. There were a lot of companies that piled into small markets, and you could have forty companies all all competing to provide you with power. Okay, how did the power get to your house? It got to your house using wires. And there was only one wire that went to your house, not 40. So the property that is the wire is held by one company generally across the country. And they're the ones that have to upgrade it. Across, across the, country, the a, state Uh, Each area, each place where it is. So the the wire that goes to your house in Texas is owned by one company. Go ahead. That's Encore in Texas. Encore for our area. If you're in Austin, it's the city of Austin. So each area has its own kind of a monopolistic structure that's a holdover from before deregulation because you can't put 40 lines in there just in case one of them is the company you're using you need one line so that's the coordination issue the company that owns the line is the one that has to upgrade it but if your contract is changing regularly from company to company it's hard to figure out who pays in in our area of texas is encore who pays encore for the upgrade of the of the transformer you were going to say something
1: well, that's a, and it's a good, it's a good point. Uh, some of the infrastructure we have that goes to the small towns and rural areas date back to the 1930s. Yeah. Why? Because in 1936, Congress passed the Rural Electrification Act. And President Roosevelt, by executive order, for, formed the Rural Electric, Electrification Administration. Up until then, <clears throat> a lot of farms and small towns didn't have electricity and didn't have reliable electricity if they had electricity. Why? Because it's not economically feasible, it's not profitable to run a long line out to a farm or run a long line out to a rural area where people live. You're going to have to charge them like $3,000 a month
0: to run the power in their barn because you had to put in 14 miles of
1: line and all those telephone poles. And it's still, by the way, not economically feasible to maintain those lines. It has, there has to be some support from the government to do that. Otherwise, the electric company is just simply not going to do it without, unless they charge a tremendous amount of money, in which case many people couldn't afford it. It's kind of like the highway system. It is not... The highway system doesn't work on a privatization basis. It's just too expensive to put highways everywhere. So we pay our taxes, and we get highways everywhere. So, so this is the weirdness about the power grid because you've just talked about
0: two things that are really easy to separate out. The power grid is in deregulation looks a lot more like the railroads, which is to say private enterprise builds out the infrastructure and they either rent the easement from the government or some other arrangement is made. So back in the 1800s when uh, the railroaders were coming through and burning people out and so on, and they were using eminent domain, a, a private Corporations were using governmental eminent domain to seize property to put railroads through. Um, same thing happens with power lines. Private companies seize private property using eminent domain to put power lines through. When you're talking about a highway, it unless it's a toll road, it's generally a publicly owned asset that is using eminent domain to go through a farm. So the difference between the two is minor in 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 what we've just said. It's major when it comes to deregulating and allowing competition into those spaces. So competition on the railroads, they have to have agreements because you can only one run one train on those tracks at a time unless they're going the same distance. It sounds like an SAT question, doesn't it? As if a train leaves a track coming from San Antonio and another one leaves the track coming from Dallas, at what point do they collide? That's the that's the question. And so it has to be coordinated. That means that you have to have uh, a governmental organization that helps to coordinate this stuff. We have that at the state level and sometimes at the county level when it comes to the power grid. So we need some... Simplification on how the power grid
1: works before the infrastructure can even take off. There's another aspect. The Rural Electrification Act has had a host of amendments to it, Uh, and the last one was in 2014, and it was a pilot program that has grown since then to make loans to enable gigabit internet connectivity to rural areas. Like we live in, I live in Salado, and so does Jake. And one of the reasons we can do this radio program from here is we have high speed internet in Salado right now, which we didn't used to have. And one of the reasons that we have high speed internet in Salado is 35 year, very low interest loans are available to companies that want to put in that type of operation in small towns like Salado. And is it, why, why did the government sponsor this and guarantee those loans? Well, Very simply, it's good for the economy and it's good for the tax base and ultimately it's profitable for the government if people can work from wherever they are and you need the internet to work. Right. So to put
0: that in a different frame, our business in Salado with its internet connection is more productive and more profitable because we can look at things online at a high speed, which means if we're more profitable, we pay more taxes. The taxes get paid back. So infrastructure spending on the government level, especially when done with low-interest loans, it's profitable on the loan, and then it turns around and is profitable in the tax revenue side. This is the kind of spending that we want to see in the government because that's the kind of spending that long-term raises GDP. Same's true when when you're talking about college, just as a side note, that low-interest college loans from the government raises GDP long-term.
1: The other thing that raises GDP is availability of transportation. I was talking about the fact we have bottlenecks. And if you've driven up and down I-35, particularly on a late Friday or something, you've seen the bottlenecks that are occurring. We need to find ways to get goods and
0: services and people. I don't think you're supposed to put bottles on the road. Just as a side note, you see those bottlenecks, you should probably pick them up and take them off the road. You're not supposed to stop on the
1: interstate. Oh, Oh, okay, All right. Go ahead. The point is that we are have we have a lot. We could do a lot more business in the United States if we had more roads, more railroads, uh, we had more pipelines. There's a lot of things that we need to have, and we need to be smart about how we put those in, and where we put them, and why we're putting them there, and not some counterproductive reason. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot going on in the United States, and and we need you know, if we're going to stay competitive. We need to get it. Let me give you an example here I think is very important. General Motors made an announcement this last week that by 2035, they're going to be only manufacturing electric cars. No, that's that's not what they said. Zero emission cars. Okay, zero emission cars. So what is zero emissions, not electric?
0: Yeah, I guess you could have a, a hydrogen fuel cell. They have been researching that.
1: Okay, but basically... We need, right now in the United States, and we are deficient in this area, if you want to buy an electric car, there's a very limited number of places you can recharge it quickly. Very limited number. I think there's four in the local area in the Temple. There aren't any in Temple. I just looked them up on the map. Well, but the other side
0: of that is you have one in your house as well. So you're recharging at the house. It's just when you're on a trip, where do you refuel? Where do you get more power?
1: And the point is... China, for example, has them everywhere. They are they're as common as gas stations. As a matter of fact, they're in the gas stations in China. And why why are they there? Because the government paid the money to put them there. Why did we get rural electrification? The the rural electrification teams that were actually employed by the federal government in the 1930s not only strung the lines out through the rural areas; they actually went into the houses, put in fuse boxes, and put a light in the ceiling of every room. That was the government doing it. And that's why we got rural electrification. And then the government turned around and made loans to made very, very low interest loans, lower than lower than inflation rate, guaranteed loans to telephone companies who would extend the telephone lines out to these rural areas. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. Now, of course, the big one right now is we have a tremendous number of bridges and highways in the United States that are in lousy shape. Texas, we're very fortunate because we use oil revenue to pay for our highways. But if you've ever driven Interstate 10 across the southern United States, there are some places in Louisiana where the effective speed limit is about 30 miles an hour because if you go any faster, the condition of the highway will wreck your car. And it wasn't that
0: long ago right here in in Central Texas that we had the oldest stretch of interstate highway in the country right here in, in Central Texas. And it was causing accidents. It was causing logjam, pileups of traffic, uh, long delays, all that slows down business activity. If you're ordering from Amazon and it takes longer to get to you because they've gotta go through high traffic, then this is a logistical friction to doing business. It might be faster for you to drive somewhere and do business at an actual store. That would be bad for Amazon. So the lo- it's bad for the store if they're, Truck d- uh, deliveries are are late due to traffic, so I, I think w- everyone's in agreement that the infrastructure spending is a big deal. And uh, one part of John's comment here is the green movement is pushing a mandate toward battery powered cars. Um, they are pushing; they've been pushing that a long time, and I think what they'll they'll probably be try to put mandates on corporations the way they have in the past. But the reality is those mandates only are feasible and don't get overturned later on if the technology is available. And we're on the road easily. See my metaphor on roads. Um, mm-hmm. We're on the road toward it's simply going to be cheaper to run electric vehicles in the future. And that's the reason we'll, and, and they will be... Uh, you know, charged. We'll figure out some way of getting them charged up. You can't mandate it if there's no infrastructure for it. So the infrastructure has to be there first. Uh, the The whole concept of electric vehicles, when you know Tesla's way pie in the sky priced right now, it's way, 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 way too high. But the concept of what they're doing is the future. It is now less expensive over the lifetime of each of the Tesla model vehicles less expensive than their highest competitor at the same, same uh, model. So it's less expensive to run an electric vehicle over a five or a six-year period than it is to have an internal combustion, even though the sticker price on the electric vehicle is higher on the front end. And that's only been in the last two years that that's been the case. Before that, it was kind of an ego thing. Look, I have an electric car and I'm willing to spend a lot more money on it than, than is reasonable. Well, now it's on average becoming less expensive and over the long term, it's gonna be greatly more expensive to run an internal combustion car. Just think of the number of parts in the engine that have to work right and the amount of oil that you have to have for all of those moving parts that have to happen in order for you to have forward motion where you really are limited to batteries, motors, and computer in an electric vehicle. Leaves you a lot of other space to do other things. Now, that's not saying that the answer is there now. This is a long, long term. And anybody that listens to the program for very long knows that when the government mandates things for ecological reasons, tends to not work until we have the technology to do it profitably.
1: It's worthy also of note that the Clean Water Act, which is the government mandating something, did clean up the water. The Clean Air Act did clean up the air. The air is is really, really clean. You can just normally breathe air in most cities without too much difficulty. Whereas people were getting emphysema in Los Angeles and New York before we passed the Clean Air Act. I yeah. Mean, and water uh, rivers on
0: fire is not something we want to see again, I think.
1: So there's a place for government and there's a place for private enterprise in this. Uh, we can get into a lot of things like the XL pipeline and, and odds, odds and ends like that, but that tends to get pretty political. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing about pipelines to bring
0: tar oil from Canada, uh, that that's, you know, the big pipelines that are in debate right now were started, the whole concept of them were started back when oil was selling at more than $100 a barrel. And it made sense to take this really hard to refine stuff out of Canada and bring it down to Houston to refine it. It was going to take us decades to get the pipeline built, but hey, once we got the the oil there, we would refine it. It'd be great. Except that now we're fracking and we got a lot more cheaper oil, much closer to the refining locations.
1: One of the issues for the XL Keystone Pipeline, it was a big deal. And it is a big deal for corporations is the, the refineries that are down along the Texas Gulf Coast were built to refine heavy, what's called dirty oil because they got it from Venezuela. And that's what they were there for, and they're designed to do that. And now the big source of heavy, dirty oil is the tar sands in, 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 in Canada. The, the Edmonton West. area, yeah. The question is Does it make sense to build a pipeline or does it make sense to revamp the old uh, refineries in Texas? Um, and the argument on one side is the pipeline doesn't make any sense. Why are we bringing oil into a country that's exporting oil? And why are we bringing dirty oil in that takes a lot, that creates, it takes a lot of energy to process and may or may not even be, it may not even be profitable to process by the time we get the pipeline done?
0: This is, this is, Coal, again, writ large. Coal is a, it was the primary source of energy for the United States and the world for about 150 years. Um, I mean, the black black fogs of London were because they were burning coal to heat. Coming forward to today, why is coal going away? Even though we had four years of a president that was really supportive of coal in general, had nothing to do with, Coal itself, it had to do with the fact that natural gas is cheaper and it's coming from a fracking location, it's faster to transport, it's cheaper, it burns cleaner, and it's more efficient in creating energy. You put all that, all that together, saving coal becomes a silly concept. You're just doing it because we used to do it. Be like saying, I wanna have a, a saddle in my car, why? There's no reason for that saddle to be there unless you have a horse somewhere. Why are you have a saddle in your car? Well, that's old technology. Uh, when we're talking about older ways, uh, you know, Venezuela, when it, with its oil was thick, Canadian oil is thick. We have sweet crude coming out of fracking that's a lot cheaper to get there. I, I think the Canadians should invest in some refinery for their tar sand oil. Uh, and then then you can ship that stuff through the other pipelines that already exist coming from Canada of ready for, re, already refined fuels. Uh, those already exist. So the keystone was to move some really nasty, dirty stuff. I think it would have been done properly. I don't think they would have had big spills or anything. But the reality is, most people don't want to have a coal power plant anywhere near their house. And why would you? So same's true with this kind of refinery. Why would you want to have oil coming through an area when it seems like it might be cheaper to change the whole concept of what's going on? I know a lot of people spent a lot of money on that pipeline, and it looks like it's not going to work. That's no, no bueno. I don't like that. I don't like that the government keeps changing its mind. It's like we have multiple personalities. Yes, I agree to that. No, I don't. Yes, I do. As we talk about Paris and climate change and Keystone pipelines. And yes, we have multiple personalities
1: here in this particular country. There's also, there also is the, how many pounds is the grill? Is it 600 pound gorilla or is it 800 pound gorilla? I think it depends on how angry it is. Well, there's, there's a saying, there's a something 100-pound gorilla in the room, and I don't remember which. Yeah,
0: I, I think it's been called an 800-pound gorilla and a 600-pound gorilla, but I don't think there's a regulatory body. There's no, as Al Gore would say, there was no controlling legal authority You got that the,
1: phrase. Anyway, the 800-pound gorilla in the room we haven't talked about, and that is the pandemic. And there's good news and bad news in the pandemic front. One, the bad news I started with the good news in the newsletter, but let's start with the bad news. The bad news is the new variants of the disease are here in the United States and spreading. Uh, In Florida, they found a couple of people with the South African variant uh, that spreads much faster and apparently is more deadly than the standard variant that we've been working with for some time. Yeah, Dr. Fauci
0: has said it is here and it's probably a lot more widespread. Most of the testing doesn't have the ability to check for it, but... Just as a side note, kids don't usually get the normal variant, and a lot of kids are getting COVID right now. I'm sitting here in quarantine because there was an outbreak at one of my child's schools. So that means
1: the variant's probably here already. It is the people who were picked up in Florida who were identified in Florida as having the new South African variant had not been to South Africa, nor did they know anybody who's been to South Africa, which means it's spreading in the population. So we got we've got a much more contagious and probably more deadly. At least the UK is saying that the version that has popped up in the UK is 30 to 40% more deadly than the other one. But we also have vaccines coming out and about a million people a day. The problem with a million people a day, and maybe even a little more than a million people a day, is we have about 330 million people in the United States, which means that it's going to take us at a million people a day, it would take us 330 days to vaccinate everyone. And we need to get a, About 80 to 90% of the people vaccinated to really kill this pandemic. Fortunately, it looks like it's going to accelerate. And the best estimate, Texas is saying that May is the earliest that people who aren't in the 1B status. That means they're either over 65 or have some comorbidity, um, some disease, some underlying disease like diabetes. It'll be May probably before the vaccine is available for the people who are just in the general population. So this is going to take a while it'll probably be mid summer before we see the the numbers really, really start to decline. The good news is the hospitalizations in the past two weeks have started to fall as have the new cases. We don't know why. Maybe we're just getting over the Christmas get together. They're still very, very high. They're still higher than they were in October and November. The number of new cases, the number of hospitalizations, the other Bad news is the death rate, the actual number of deaths per week or per day is setting at record highs right now and rising. So it's important to be careful and it's important to recognize that there's a lot of people out there running around with the disease that are spreading it that have no symptoms. That is one of the big, and it could be you, which is why. Are you talking to me? It's not me. It very well could be you, <laughs> indirectly exposed. Uh, it could be anybody. It could be me. Uh, we don't know who has it and who doesn't have it. So I just got it. a test result back, and it's negative, so so there. Hmm. Well, maybe you're one of the few people that were comfortable don't have. At least you didn't have it when you took the test. Right.
0: Well, and we've been on quarantine
1: the whole time since I took the test, so... So we've got this 800-pound gorilla in the room. And until we get this 800-pound gorilla vaccinated, which is a hard thing to do if you've ever tried to vaccinate an 800-pound gorilla, we got a problem. And we need to deal with the problem by not spreading it, by not spreading the disease, and by being careful.
0: Okay. You've had some good
1: news to throw in there, too. Well, the good news is that the... Um, the hospitalization rate is falling been falling for the last 2 weeks the uh, new infection rate has been falling for the last 2 weeks we may have seen the worst of it already but the other the other good news is that we mentioned I mentioned this earlier is that people have a lot of cash they're not spending which is why consumer spending went down in december so all the all the bad news is all short term long term and this is important every indication that we know of as economists say that we're in for an economic boom this year that probably will be as good as anything anyone's ever seen. The Economist magazine, as a matter of fact, forecasts that in 2021 we'll see the largest number of new jobs created in the history of the United States. And I believe that's true. I
0: I am in total agreement with that. I, I think that is on par with
1: the kind of recovery we should expect to see. So... There's some craziness going on out there. The market is not completely crazy, by the way. When the market is crazy, you see record highs in the market when the economy is headed downhill. When the economy starts to collapse or the economy starts to slide into recession and the market keeps going up, that's when the craziness in the market should be something to be concerned about. What should you do about it? A well-diversified portfolio. And if you don't know what that means, that doesn't mean a bunch of different stocks. That doesn't mean five stocks. It means having the recognition that the markets do go down and having the your portfolio structured so that if they do go down, you still got money available to
0: you. Um, but if you'd like to join us with email, you can email directly Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake or both. Jake at tpwc.com. That's the personal and we will be back on the other side with more of The Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Mac Um, We've got Still lots of stuff to talk about. I think we should, and we've got about a little over 10 minutes left this week in our program. Um, We want to make some pretty clear statements. We've been talking about a lot of specifics, and we've talked about the pandemic. We've talked about craziness in the market. And and, um, if you're all right with this, I'd like to talk a little bit, uh, and you would to talk a little bit at the end of this hour, about just everyday good decision making, and you were talking about being diversified and so on, but we've heard from a lot of people over the last week that are terrified about, they're not really quite sure what. Market conditions, economic conditions, tax conditions, really, really scared. And this is some good news that people are scared. It's counterintuitive, but that generally means that we don't have a bad, bad experience about to happen because there's too many people looking for it right now. When it comes to the market, we have these little gauges. Two and a half weeks ago, I was getting people say calling me up and saying, "I need to get more aggressive, I need to get more aggressive." This last week, I've had a lot of people saying, "Let's get more conservative, let's get more conservative." What that means is that we're still at, probably at the beginning parts of the bull waning. So we are through a bull market. We've had a bull market since, since March that is very unusual. It's a very fast bull market. It looks a lot like a lot of other periods in history. We may have inflation coming down the road. We may not. We may have, there's all these maybes out there. So what we like to do when there's a lot of uncertainty is you go back to the things you can be certain of. The things that you can be certain of, knowing why you're invested in what you're invested in, being well diversified, being in it for a long period of time and not watching it every day, making sure you have high quality investments and that you would know the reason why you would sell them before you buy them. I know those all seem weird because people, when they get into the market, they say, I have $1,000 to invest, or I have $100,000 to invest, or whatever the number is, I'm going to invest this money. And then they figure out, where am I going to put the money? They don't really define for themselves why. They don't say, why am I putting it here? Is it well diversified? Am I structuring this to take make sure that I am not really just jumping in because there's a mania going on? Make sure that when you're investing that you're maintaining reserves. This is a good time to talk about it because a lot of people have more cash than they usually do. Maintain that when you're moving toward investment. Know that the market has downs. Uh, it, It does go down. It goes down regularly and has gone down throughout its history. It's also gone up throughout its history. And historically, it's gone up a lot more than it's gone down. But when we're really high, I tell people, maintain reserves. If you have money for long-term, let's make it well-diversified. We'll put the money in long-term. But don't expect to make the kind of returns that we've seen since March on a regular basis unless you're willing to see a regular basis downturn of significant proportions in your portfolio. I'm sure that was a mouthful. I'm sure you have more to add on this subject.
1: Well, it's important to recognize that the way you get growth above zero, if you're willing to accept a below zero percent growth, put the money in the bank. The point is, when I say below zero, they may be paying a little bit of interest in the bank, but it won't be as high as inflation. It never has. That's the way it works. Inflation runs higher than bank interest rates. But if you want a long term return on your portfolio that's higher than what you can get in the bank, then you have to accept variance in your portfolio. And the higher the return you're expecting out of your portfolio, the higher the variance is going to be. And the variance is both up and down in any given year. You can approach it from a conservative, well-diversified point of view, though. You can say, okay, I'm going to have some of my money invested in areas in the market that traditionally have given appreciation. And I'm going to have other money invested in areas where traditionally we've seen income and stability. The income and stability side probably won't perform anywhere near as well And matter of fact, through almost all of history, has not performed anywhere near as well as the appreciation side over the long term. But in the short term, it's important to have a reserve. We call it in our firm dry powder. Dry powder, that's right. And we can see how long bear markets traditionally last, and we can see uh, what you need to be in to avoid spending too much time in a bear market. There's two things Jake mentioned a minute ago that I think are very important. One is we had people saying, I want to get more aggressive because the market's going up. And now we're getting people saying, I want to get more conservative because I'm scared of the market. Fear and greed are the two emotions that drive market values in many cases. Try to avoid both of them and maintain the same portfolio that you're comfortable with for the long-term in your long-term portion of the portfolio. You should have a short-term portion of the portfolio that says if the market were to do a 50 percent drop in the S&P 500, or if it were to do something similar to it did in 2008 and 2009, I'm quite comfortable because I have enough in conservative positions that I can draw everything I need from my, from my portfolio during the period of time the market likely is likely to be down. It, it isn't an easy thing to do. If you haven't studied it, we've studied it. We know what, I think we know what we're doing. We, all we can do is look at history, but it's important when we say well diversified to really have a well diversified portfolio that will protect you as well as give you some reasonable rate of return. Hopefully Uh, there's no way of knowing the future. And this
0: is one of those things we keep saying, we study the past. We talked all last year and the year before about a possible and even likely we predicted a recession for 2020. We did not predict
1: a pandemic. We have been predicting a recession in 2020, what, for about five years now. Yeah,
0: specifically to that year. We didn't know that there was a pandemic coming. This is a normal part of a growth cycle. We had a long recovery from the Great Recession. And those recoveries have hiccups, and they stop for a while, and then you get a recovery from that thing. That's what happens throughout history. So we were due for it and everything was lining up perfectly for us to get a recession in 2020 already. And then a pandemic hit. So it was a bigger recession than we expected. And then the market acted funny. So the market dropped crazily and then shot back up. It's really not that funny. It's pretty normal behavior for the market coming into this type of very quick recession. Uh, We're still in recovery. We have not come, you know, we talk about Moody's back to normal index and the Moody's CNN back to normal index. And we're still at about 80% of what we were as far as overall uh, expectations of where we're going. We're in recovery though. We are in the place where we're getting better. That tends to be where bull markets start. We're, we had a, a bit of a a strange start to this bull market because so much cash was dumped into the system, not just by the Federal Reserve, not just by the stimulus, uh, the multiple stimulus bills that have come through, but also because people have sold things that they didn't really need when they realized, hey, we may need cash, and they bulked up their own savings. They stopped spending on things like the big trip to Europe, that they had planned for 2020, and that was within their budget already, well now they had this extra cash that they sat on and it because it was in their budget, they could afford to save up for another big trip to Europe with new money next year. So they're sitting on big cash and a lot of people have been saying, what do I do with this? And the number of amateurs that pull out their phones and wanna show me, and by, when I say amateur, like have not invested in individual stocks on their own ever before in their lives. They pull out their phones and they wanna show me this really complicated set of stocks that they're owning with different options on it. And I, I see that as the, the, the most dangerous part of this particular bear market is the number of people that are likely to seriously be burned because they don't realize how risky they're being Options are not for the faint of heart. You really shouldn't be in option investing unless you thoroughly understand what you're doing and know that the risk could be higher than your investment. You could owe more than the total you you put in at the end of it. Just know that. There's just, I wish I could warn more on that subject. I don't want to kick the horse, but and the people that are doing it right now probably are not taking this warning seriously because they're like well I've made a lot of money doing this in the last few weeks ah be careful because that money easy come easy come easy go don't put your kids college money in there there's a key here
1: there's the stock market and there's speculation they're different things very people are afraid right now of the stock market because other people are speculating in the stock market. The fact that the, the stock market as a whole, stocks as a whole, can be conservative or they can be aggressive. And it can be speculative or it can be reasonable. We recommend reasonable. And if you don't know what reasonable is, if you haven't, if you can't give a clear definition of it, then you need some help. And we're about out of time. Yes, we are. If you
0: would like to talk to us off the air uh, on in our role as fiduciaries, we do give fiduciary investment advice to people of high net worth. Um, you can call us off the air. We have voicemail waiting locally at 254 947 1111. And you can reach that same voicemail during the weekend. During the weekday, we have real live people answering the phone. Uh, the the toll free number is 1 800 914 7526. That's eight hundred nine fourteen 914 plan. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com you can sign up for our newsletter you can see the link to the podcast we've got podcasts going out all over the place you can listen to recordings of the radio program going back lots of years you can also contact us through the contact form or email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com until next hour this is or next week this has been the personal wealth coach